Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joined today, he's a motivational speaker, mindset coach, and metal vocalist. It's Sonny Von Cleveland. How are you doing today, Sonny? Good, man. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your Rise to the Challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Oh, so I'm from a small town in Michigan uh, called Carson City in Crystal. It's like two towns put into one. Uh, and they kind of, they combine them. And, uh, I grew up in, it's a, like a old country, you know, small town, not a lot of people, a lot of racing, got a racetrack, got go-kart tracks, a motocross track. It's, uh, it's, it's one of those types of small towns. Um, and I, I wasn't much, you know, I was, I was pretty reclusive as a kid. Uh, I spent most of my time in the woods. Uh, I, I was horribly molested as a child from the time I was five until I was 10 years old by four different men. So most of my childhood was spent in reclusion, listening to music. My mom had a really eclectic music collection in a tape box. And I used to hide off in the closet and listen to the music a lot. And it really helped develop my taste in music and my uh, affinity for music growing up. Uh, and I got in a lot of trouble. I caught my first felony when I was seven years old um, and continued down that path uh, most of my childhood, uh, ultimately landing in prison when I was 16. So the childhood part of my life was pretty shitty, we'll say. <laughs> what was the type of music that was in that box that your mom had? Oh, man, she had everything from... Uh, old country, like old uh, George Jones and George Strait. And this is in the 80s. So a lot of early 80s music, uh, Poison and White Snake from Meatloaf to ACDC to Led Zeppelin to the Beatles to Dolly Parton uh, and everything in between. And it was such an eclectic, like some of the biggest ones that stuck out to me were like Jimmy Buffett was really big. I love Jimmy Buffett. Um, yeah. And, and a lot of the old country, the meatloaf stuck to me really, really good. I loved meatloaf that they, they paint pictures and tell you phenomenal stories in their music. And then the music itself is amazing. Uh, but it was also where I learned like rock, like Metallica and she had some Metallica in there and, and Pantera. And so I really got into the metal stuff. I really, I love the aggression of it. And, uh, it was, it, yeah, it was, a it was a, a hell of a collection. So you talk about the box that your mom had. My dad had the two sh like drawers full of CDs when I was growing up and I was exposed to eighties, nineties rock. And I just have a passion to enjoy that stuff. Like nowadays people like what's going on now. I enjoy the classics like Def Leppard, Bon Jovi, oh. Rush, like those songs come on the radio. I'm like, turn it up. Cause it's just you know, the past. It's crazy because as, as eclectic of a group that, that it was, there was some of the key players in the music game that were missing, like Rush. Like, I never got into Rush. I never got into Kiss. She never had, like, she didn't have Kiss albums. I never really got much into Elvis. She didn't have much Elvis in there. And so I was very kind of focused on the music that she had, and I didn't really expand much outside of it. So as I get, you know, into the, we're into the 90s now. The 90s was huge for me in music because that's when I started to develop my own tastes. I, I missed out on so many amazing bands like Rush, 
Uh, and then to the point where it's like, I hear a Rush song and I didn't know that that was Rush. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you you got to know Rush. And I'm like, well, I don't know Rush. Well, yeah, you do. And then you hear the song, you're like, oh, that's Rush. I didn't know that was Rush. Uh, so I missed out on a lot of those. And to this day, I'm not like a Kiss fan or a Rush fan. <laughs> <laughs> so you talked about how at a young age, a lot of things started happening towards you was it kind of the environment that your family was in the small town that it kind of led to those things and it just didn't go away because you were just being exposed to those things? You know, I I've looked back at it a lot and have tried to figure out like what set the stage for multiple molestations, not just once, you know, some, Mm -hmm. most kids are victimized by one predator. Um, and for me, it was, my uncle was my first victimizer and a very long, consistent one, but it was also one of my mother's boyfriends, uh, and a couple of family friends. And I don't know if it's just something in the water in that part of the world, but it just seemed, and for a long time, it really messed me up, uh, emotionally and psychologically, because I thought there was something about me that was attracting these predators. Mm-hmm. And you start to develop a very bad sense of self-worth when you feel like you're attracting predators because you know that, it, that this is wrong, what's happening, but there, it, it happens so consistently that you just, you, you embrace it. You become, it becomes part of your everyday life. You even find enjoyment in it. And it's, it, that deteriorates your self-worth and your self-image and you just, it, it ruins your identity. You don't know who you are. And it's, and so I can't really speak to why it happened or the cultural preconditions that, that engendered it or brought it on, but that's the best I got. Was it hard for you to then trust people because you didn't know what could happen? Sure. Sure. Uh, I, it was very, I didn't have a father, so uh, it was very detrimental to me when it came to relationships with men. Uh, and that's where my my legal trouble, troubles came in because I fell in love with the attention from the police officers and the judges and the lawyers because these were men that didn't want to hurt me. These were men that were trying to help me in life and steer me in the right direction and discipline me and they didn't want to touch me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so the only way to get their attention is to break the law so that they'll come around. And then that just, it's just a very bad cyclical, bad thing. You know, it's, it led to a lot of problems. By the time I was 13, I've got 10 felonies on my record and just a very bad looking kid. Was those records like big, serious things that is more pertain to an adult that would do, or are these more kind of any age could really affect in those? Yeah, I mean, and it's because of small town politics as well, which is why the record is was as bad as it was. Uh, you know, we were very poor, uh, so and my mother was very anti government, anti police, uh, so they didn't like her to begin with, and they took it out on not only me but my brother. Um, and so it's, you know, breaking into to stores or concession stands or stealing bikes or damaging property it seemed like everything that I did, I got arrested for mm-hmm. and I had to go to court and it was a charge and then it stuck. And then it's like, your record's so bad, kid. It's nothing horrible, 
Yeah, it wasn't like killing people or a, like eating rabbits and you know, nothing, <laughs> nothing crazy, but uh, small town politics, you know. Did it give you that like survival tactic in a way you were doing anything to survive or get to the next day? Um, I had a, a strong self-preservation instinct. Sure. I, I, that's one of the main factors that led me to being such a lonely child. It's, it's weird because my inherent nature is very social. I'm a Mm -hmm. very outgoing, uh, I'm an entertainer. I love to perform. I love to make people laugh. I'm a very social person. I like to interact with people. I love to meet people. And when that's your inherent nature, but you've built up this psychological defense, it's, it's, it's such a dichotomy inside yourself that you, you don't know what to do. So it ended up with me like creating fake characters, fantasy characters in my mind where I'm playing in the woods all day with fantasy characters. You know, I loved J.R.R. Tolkien and the, the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and, the, and you know you go back to those '80s movies like the the, the Labyrinth and The Secret of Nim, and those stories translated over into my imaginary life in the woods. And so instead of interacting with people, I kind of created my own world in the woods. Uh, and then when I was at home, I was putting the headphones on and listening to music, blocking the world out. And, uh, you know, putting on a smile for everybody that came through because I'm also a very caring person. And I, to the point that I cared whether or not my, my predators were found out, I didn't want them to get in trouble. I didn't want them to be hurt. I didn't want their families to be hurt. I didn't, you know, and so the embarrassment and the shame forced me to put on a smile uh, and act like nothing was wrong. And again, that's such a sick dichotomy for a child to go through because, while I'm putting on this smile and acting like everything's fine in, in internally, you're, you're just destroying, you're deteriorating. And now it's, it's such a bad mindset for a child to be in. It leads to a very destructive behavior. You know, you mentioned earlier that it led up to the age of 16 when it was first getting chart or going into jail or prison. And that's when it starts set, uh, spending time in there. Yeah, Is that correct? Yeah. 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 I was, I was 15 years old, uh, and my mother was living uh, out on some state property in a tent with her boyfriend and a dog, uh, and I was essentially homeless, staying with friends wherever I could, and getting into a lot of trouble. I was drinking, uh, smoking a lot of pot, um, and breaking into a lot of places to try to get money so I could sell things and get money, um, and I was actually still going to school, ironically. Uh, And I was in 10th grade and I had gotten caught smoking weed in school. And the principal had put me and the other boys that I was caught with uh, in a, a lunch program. We had off campus lunch. And so he put us on this, this program during lunch where we would go to the office uh, during lunch and have these drug conversations. So one day I go in there and nobody's there. The, The principal's not there. The other kids aren't there. And as I'm sitting there, I seen the safe is cracked open uh, and I reach over with my foot and I open it up and I see a bunch of tubs and everything. And I reach in and I grab an envelope and I take off. I'm out. Boom. And I got out of school. Uh, it turned out I had a couple thousand dollars in it. Uh, and then so I got expelled from school. And then that's when we fast forward to the summer, July, I got arrested 
uh, and had to go to sentencing for that. And the judge bound me over. He said, I'm sick of, of seeing you in my courtroom. I'm binding you over as an adult. So I went into adult court for that, and they gave me six months in the county jail. This is the first time I'd ever been locked up or taken away. I'd always just had my hand slapped, uh, probation, probation, probation. I did uh, you know, a, a week or two in some kind of camp. Uh, but he sent me to the county jail. And while I was in the county jail, all those other charges came up. And that was 18 days after I had turned 16 is when I went to jail. And then I didn't get out again for five and a half years. During those five years, what did that experience teach you about yourself or what you needed to do when you got that first chance out? It is it that five and a half years is the template you would use to teach someone how not to go to prison or not, mm-hmm. how not to do time because I went in with all of that emotional trauma and, and things in my life. I immediately fell in with the gangbangers uh, because of course I'm, I, I learned yearned for social interaction and, and gangs are like that, right? Like gangs are like a brotherhood and they make mm-hmm. you feel welcomed and they, and they, you know, you feel like a family almost. And they use those words, those, those, those catchphrases and key words like family and brotherhood. And, and so I got in and I'd never seen that again. I'm from small town, Michigan. I've never seen gangbangers. Uh, and so I fell into that and it's very violent. So my very first week in prison, I was raped by two men. They ran into my cell and had their way with me for about 15 minutes. Uh, And it was that point in my life where I said, I'm never going to be a victim again. I'm done being scared. I'm done being afraid. I'm never going to let this happen again. And that's it it led me down such a violent path because I lost my sense of fear at Mm. that point. Like I'm no longer and I don't know what it was. Something just switched off in my brain where I just. I no longer cared if I lived or died or if you hurt me, because you can't hurt me any more than I've already been hurt. Physical pain doesn't bother me. Uh, and then the gang loved that. When the gang saw that, they like, we need this dude. Uh, I would fight at the drop of a hat. I would stab people at the drop of a hat. I did not have a problem stabbing somebody, hitting somebody with a weapon. And the gang loved that. They put me in the gang very quickly. I mean, I was maybe in there for two months and I joined the gang. Uh, and within six months, I had already developed a reputation for stabbing people, hitting people with locks and, and just being a very violent person. Uh, and that entire five years went like that. So they, they sent me to this new prison that Michigan had, uh, opened up a private prison called Bald in Baldwin, Michigan called Wackenhut. And that was just so bad. It was full of everybody from the age of 13 to 20. When you hit 20, you, you aged out uh, and went back to the regular prisons. And I was 18 and a seasoned gangbanger by that point. I'd been in there for almost three years and it was just bad. There was two years of just destruction, violence. Uh, and then I hit 20 and went back to the, to the regular MDOC and fell back in with the old school guys, and which was really bad, really violent. And then in 2002, in December, they just opened the door. They're like, hey, your time's done. You're out. I maxed out the sentence. So I had no parole, no nothing. They just opened the door. There you go. And I mean, what are you supposed to do? What am I? I don't, in the mindset that I'm in, 
I'm surprised I, I made it out for 22 months. I'm surprised I was out for 22 days. I robbed somebody the very first day that I was out. Uh, I got out, did some drinking with my brother and uh, woke up at like one o'clock in the morning, walked down to a gas station and robbed a dude. Uh, and for the next 22 months, I just ran the country all over the place, just being such a horrible human being. So I was so angry. I felt like the world owed this to me. Like the world had punished me for nothing. I was just an innocent kid. Uh, and I had to go through all of that. And, and I, I blamed everything around me for what had happened to me in my life. And I used that as a justification for living the way I did. I got into robbing drug dealers, which was a very lucrative thing for me. And I kept doing it. Uh, and then came back to Michigan uh, in, in August of 2004 uh, and had was doing some home invasions and came across a particularly bad incident with a pedophile uh, that I lost my cool on and very violent altercation, um, which I ended up getting arrested for. Uh, and then plea dealed out and was able to get the violent charges dropped, pled out to 12 more years uh, and went back to prison. Do you feel if you kind of went in a different environment and maybe a different area that it would take away the kind of the criminal mindset where that was your only way of knowing how to survive and maybe it, a new start in a way, maybe out of Michigan? I, I think, I mean, I can go back and pinpoint so many opportunities mm -hmm. that could have altered the course of my life. Um, however, as it sits today, I'm, I'm so glad that I didn't. I, I don't regret anything uh, mm -hmm. because regret is a, for me, is a useless emotion. If regret's not going to change anything. It's not going to, nothing can change from what just happened 10 minutes. We can't start this podcast over. It's already happened. Correct. Um, and so there sure was, if, if people had paid more attention to this angry young man that had came into the DOC and said, Hey, there's these programs are available and kind of guided you towards it, pushed you towards it. Sure. Um, but then I wouldn't be where I am. So yeah, it's put me in a position where I can help teach and show people that might be going through a similar situation, how to avoid that. Uh, but you know, you can't change the past, right? I love that you mentioned about regret because I kind of live that today for me where don't regret anything. Everything happens for a reason and everything is a learning opportunity. Would you say your time through these actions, it's a big learning opportunity for you because you see what you are in the past, but now you have the right to make a new chapter, set a new goal for yourself. 100%. The second 12 years of my life, the, the, the second 12 years on the second bit uh, was a, was a, a whole different ball game. Um, it, the first six, eh, first four years of that were much the same. A lot of gang banging. I was comfortable right back into my zone. Um, and then I had, after one particularly violent incident, uh, after finding out that my brother, the only sibling that I have, uh, I had started having an affair with the mother of my oldest son. I had two kids when I was out uh, and they started having an affair and they were now together and had a child and they were keeping my son from me. I couldn't see him anymore, talk to him anymore. 
I went to a very dark place, uh, got into a very violent altercation and went to the hole and they gave me a five-year sentence in the hole. Uh, I ended up doing 19 months on it. Um, but when I went to the hole across the hall from me was a Muslim man named Mallory Bay. And he would call over to me every day from the moment I got in there. Hey, hey, white boy, come talk to me. Come talk to me. And I didn't want to talk to him. You know, I'm like, just leave me alone. I cussed him out, called him everything under the sun. Uh, and after a couple of weeks, loneliness kicks in. And it's like, what do you want to talk about, man? And I'll never forget the third, first things he said to me. Why are you so angry? And what is it that you're passionate about in life? And I didn't have an answer. You know, now I've, I'm not an idiot by any stretch of the imagination. I spent a lot of time learning in the times that I was in, like education wise. So I know how to read. I know how to write very well. I was very articulate. Um, and so I enjoyed dialogue. I enjoyed conversation. And he started to challenge me with why I'm so angry and what is it that I'm passionate about in life? And I didn't have an answer for these things. And so, you know, you're not going anywhere. We're sitting here for years. You're not, you're not going anywhere. It's just you and I. So let's figure that out. And my first thought, I remember thinking all the time was like, why is this dude trying to help me? Like, you don't know me from a hole in the wall. You know, if we're on the yard, we're on opposite sides of the team. We're not on the same team here. Uh, and I just can't understand why. And he was, had broke it down to me. Like life is about legacy. Like what you leave behind, what people remember you as is immortality. If you, you know, if you're just a, a, a piece of trash, it doesn't do anything in life. You're going to die. Nobody's going to remember you in a year. And you just, you fade off into nothingness. Everybody dies. This is a wonderful law of stoicism. Uh, the memento mori uh, philosophy in stoicism. Marcus Aurelius points out that everybody dies. It doesn't matter how much you accomplish in this lifetime. A week after you're dead, most people don't forget about you. Like mm -hmm. they put you in the ground, they mourn and it's over. So everybody's going to die. It's about if they remember you a thousand years from now, that's immortality, right? Like you have left a legacy that helps heal the world or teach it a lesson. Every major figure in the world teaches us a lesson. Even Hitler taught us lessons, right? Like he showed us what fear was and showed us what, what uncompassion looks like and what hatred looks like so that we know how to identify it and avoid it and combat it, right? And so he started challenging me to read these self-help books. He started sending me over self-help books, started challenging me to write essays and uh, I wrote my own auto or uh, my own. Uh, uh, I can't even think of the word now. When you die, your oh, obituary. Obituary. I wrote my own obituary, and it was a long process. It's an in-depth process, and it's something that I highly recommend for anybody because if you take it really seriously, it gives you a blueprint to what you truly want out of your life. Um, and so that was one of the real profound things that I did in my life that really helped design my future. Uh, and the more I read, the more I, I delved down into the emotion, you know, like my wife says, you got to feel it to heal it. Mm -hmm. And, and I did that subconsciously. I, I, she calls me the accidental Buddhist because I have such uh, an amazing sense of detachment. 
because I went through my entire life a million times. I replayed every memory of my life to try to identify why I was so angry. What made me passionate? What did I like? What did I hate? What did I love? What did I despise? Uh, and you just go through every emotion like sadness and depression and anxiety and fear and love and happiness. And, and you feel all those emotions. And then I, you're able to, to eliminate the ones that you don't want, eliminate the bad ones and emphasize the good ones. And I started to define things that, that made me passionate. Music brought itself back into my life. Like I am so passionate about music. So I started to sing a lot and people would call down like, Hey man, sing that one song, man. And, you know, so I would, I was like the entertainer in the hole. I would sing half the night. Uh, and the more essays I started to write, I started to send them out uh, to the uh, activity coordinator in the prison system. They started to send them out to the libraries uh, and I was able, because of it, I was able to uh, get books from an interlibrary loan for the local library. Uh, and that helped me to expand my knowledge on, you know, I read everything from the art of war to the 48 laws of power, to the Prince by Machiavelli, to uh, the power of personality, to John C. Maxwell leadership series, just started reading everything and ingesting this knowledge uh, to the point where they came back and they said, Hey, we're instituting a new program within the facility called Thinking for a Change. Uh, we want to give you the material, have you study the material, and then come out and teach a class. If you do that, we'll let you out of the hole early. And I'm, of course I'm going to do that. Let's, let's do that. I don't want to be in the hole. Uh, so I studied the material, and I had come to a point where I, I made a promise to myself that I didn't, I didn't want to engage in violence anymore. I didn't want to be in a gang. I didn't want to be a puppet for somebody else. I, didn't, I, I wanted to be my own my own person, my own God, for a lack of a better term, uh, because I believe that we're all gods. We are, we create our own life. We make our destiny. Nobody else can choose anything for us. We pick how we live our life. And that's what I want. I wanted to, I wanted to be a leader. I wanted to help people. I wanted to help change the world. Uh, and I set out on that mission. So I swore off violence. I swore off gangbanging. I studied this material. They put me in the protective custody unit to teach this class. That was a curveball that I didn't see coming. Uh, and, you know, in the protective custody unit in prison is the worst place to be. It is full of, of rats and, and snitches and uh, pedophiles of like massive amounts of pedophiles, cops, judges, lawyers. This is where they all have to go. Uh, high profile criminals. And, uh, it was a challenge at first, but then I was like, you know what, if I can teach the most despicable people to overcome and be better human beings, that's the path that I'm trying to go down. So let's do this. So I went in there, I taught the class, it turned out amazing and it was uh, excellent. And then they, they let me out of the hole. And that's when things really got bad <laughs> because when I got out of the hole, here comes the gang, right? The gang comes back. They're like, oh, there's our boy. There's our boy. And I'm like, so kind of not involved anymore. I'm not going to do that. And they don't accept that very well. They're like, well, he can't just quit. Well, I'm going to, <laughs> whether you like it or not, I'm, I'm done. Uh, and so they started to attack me a lot. As they, they would jump me in the chow hall. They would jump me in the weight pit, jump me in the yard, jump in the bathrooms. I'd go to the bathroom at two in the morning and they'd run in there and beat my ass real quick. And uh, I swore off violence. So I never fought back. I just, I was done. I was like, I'll take my lumps. Boom, boom, boom. And uh, it just kept happening to the point where I said, okay, 
I know I swore off violence, but if I don't do something, they're never going to leave me alone. Uh, so I went to the gang leader and told him, hey, listen, if y'all touch me one more time, it's going to get bad. Uh, and they did. And so I had to make that example. It's just you live in a world uh, that some men only speak one language, you know, and in there, it's so bad. I'm not going to run for the rest of my life. It's just not going to happen. Uh, so I went and I attacked the gang leader uh, very viciously in a very open manner to kind of make a statement. And it worked. They left me alone after that. <laughs> and so for the rest of my time, I spent uh, teaching dudes. I would We would have meetings on the yard where I would teach guys about stoicism and, and, and philosophy and self-help and how to, to recognize the bad habits in your life and how to eliminate self-doubt and, and proliferate your self-worth and be better human beings. And I still stay in touch with a handful of them to this day. And they're all business owners and homeowners and successful people in life. And that to me was a serious sense of accomplishment. Uh, and it led me to uh, getting married while I was in there and, uh, and then getting released uh, in 2016. And that's where the next amazing chapter of my life began. Uh, and it's been an amazing six years since then. Uh, it's had its ups and its downs, but I don't expect anything different from my life. I expect just the craziest things to happen because that's where the best stories come from, right? Being able to be open about your story, especially with your son, are you able to be open with him? And how do people react to these certain things? Because a lot that you've mentioned, it's so impactful and inspiring because some of the tools that you use to get through those days, people can utilize in their life because maybe they're going through similar stories. Maybe not the exact same, but same concepts. Yeah, I... um. So I have three kids at this point. Uh, I had the two kids when I was out that first time. Caden, uh, who's my oldest, is 18. Uh, that's the one who was with my brother. My brother pretty much raised him. He called him dad. Uh, we, we don't really have a great relationship because he's, he's, he's young still and mm-hmm. doesn't quite understand you know, a lot of the dynamics of things that happened. I never wanted to bash his mother or... his uncle. So we never really got into that with him, but now he's 18 and like, you're a man at this point. And I've, we've had an in-depth discussion a couple of weeks ago, uh, maybe a month ago. And he's just, he's hardheaded, he's stubborn. uh, And so we don't really have the greatest relationship, but my second oldest son, Dalen lives in Phoenix and we have a great relationship. Uh, I've gone out, spent a lot of time with him, uh, you know, gone to his football games, had a really good relationship with him. Uh, and that dynamic is, is amazing. Uh, and it's very fulfilling in my life. And then I have a four-year-old uh, as well, which is a whole nother ball game <laughs> um, because his mother and I are not together. She was uh, a big part of the Cleveland chapter of my life, if you will. And uh, we're working to resolve that uh, as we speak. So I'm also getting the experience of a full-blown custody battle uh, in court, which is, uh, it's expensive and it can be taxing on people. Um, but again, it's, it's a, it's a learning process, right? And so I, I take every instance of all these things that have happened in my life. And I, I, I use them as experiential moments to teach from, 
Like every, you know, uh, uh, Seneca, one of the greatest Stoics, Stoics of all time said, we're all here for the benefit of each other. We either teach or tolerate, right? And I don't think I was here to just tolerate. I think that my entire destiny is to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've, again, go back and I analyze everything that I've gone through in life and figure out a way to teach from it. Uh, and especially when it comes to kids, there's a lot of people that go to prison uh, or are absent from their kids' lives. And these are wonderful things to teach about patience and conversation and understanding and compassion, because most kids don't understand things that adults would understand, right? Wisdom is is something you can't teach. You can't teach wisdom to a kid. Wisdom comes through experience. Um, and so for for parents, it's a wonderful lesson in patience. Uh, most kids are going to grow up. I just met my father again. I just got back in touch with my father for the first time after 26 years. Wow. The last time I had seen him, I've only seen him three times in my life. Last time I saw him was when I was 15. Uh, and we reconnected about a month and a half ago. I found him. Uh, and this is this is the great lesson for parents that time will take care of it. Uh, as long as you're open to it and receptive to it and you manifest that things will be okay. And, and now my father and I are building a wonderful relationship. We, we talk frequently and uh, it's so, yeah, I use those, those lessons for my own relationship with my father and then try to correlate that off also to my own kids. I would like to talk about being a metal vocalist. When I saw this title, I was very intrigued about this because we talked about throughout this interview about your passion for music and we kind of had similar music that we were exposed to. Talk about this opportunity and this experience for you. So during my, during the nineties in my teenage years, uh, when Korn came out, Godsmack, Metallica, Pantera, they were already out obviously, but I developed such an affinity for metal and grunge, uh, loved Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, uh, everything that came out from the nineties. I just loved it. And it was a huge part of my prison time too, because I, I had a lot of music and that's how I would do a lot of my time was just listen to music all day. Uh, and in the last few years of my time, I bought a guitar because I was good and got down to a lower level where you could have guitars. And I bought an acoustic guitar and I started to teach myself how to play guitar and note, I had always had an affinity for writing poetry as well. And I was able to put the two things together. Like, I can play guitar and I can write lyrics. I can write songs uh, and it's really good. So uh, I got my first taste of performing when I was actually in prison. We had a music room and uh, we did a five song set uh, for a holiday in prison where uh, I think we did Hell Yeah, Blood for Blood. Uh, We did uh, Avenged Sevenfold. Okay. Uh, We did a couple of Godsmack songs and I doing that for 500 pissed off inmates on the yard. They're all just standing there like, it's like, okay, well you might not be enjoying it, but I'm having a blast here. Uh, So when I got out, uh, I was married to uh, a lady named Michelle that I had met while I was in prison. And I was working for the union. Uh, She had helped me get a job uh, working for the union doing demolition. And I started to uh, reach out to find musicians. Like I want to do music. This is something that I really want to do. I want to, I want to get in and, and do this. And so I started to meet musicians uh, and started practicing and I really enjoyed it. My first project was, there was a band called the kids of the Republic. It was not anything amazing, uh, but it was my <laughs> first taste. And it was like, Oh, this is fun. I enjoy this. 
uh, and it was playing guitar and doing some backup vocals. Uh, the relationship between me and my ex did not work out. Uh, and we had a very amicable divorce. Uh, I left and that's when I moved to Cleveland and I met the mother of my son. Uh, I moved with her and then I met a guy at uh, a guitar center. I was in there just picking around on some bass and I heard this dude over there just wailing away on the drums. And I'm like, wow, you're really good on the drums. And he's like, dude, you're a bass player. I was like, well, I am. I can play bass. I can play guitar. I can sing. And he's like, well, we got a band. Uh, we need a bass player. So I met up with them. I was in the band for maybe two weeks when they determined that I'd be better off on vocals than I would be on the bass uh, because their vocalist wasn't that good. So I jumped. <laughs> and this was a band called Raising Jameson. And this was this is this is kind of the launch pad for everything. Uh, so I took over on vocals. Showed them some of the songs that I'd written while I was in prison. Very easy songs to play. Uh, and we booked our first show. And it was at a place called Music Links, a brand new club uh, in Menor, Ohio. Uh, and we went there. And the, the astonishing thing was I came to find out the other five bands that were on the bill that night uh, were all seasoned headlining bands in the area. I had no idea about this at the time, clearly, because I'm not from the area. Uh, but I came in just thinking, well, they're just bands like we are. Uh, <laughs> and so what an honor looking back. It was Conniption Fit, Metal Mafia, uh, Hope for the Hollow, just amazing bands, right? Era 9 and these just these dead horse drama. That's, that was all the bands. And then Raising Jameson, nobody had ever heard of it. Uh, so I came in, did the set. It was an amazing set. Uh, and I met the owner of the club. And the first thing I saw was like, bro, you don't have any employees, man. Like, <laughs> who the hell works here? He's like, well, just opened it. Don't really have much going on. Uh, and I had lived like a mile from the place, lived right up the street. And I told him, I was like, I'm down to come back and help you out if you, you want some help. And he was like, sure. So I came back. I started to put in my work, uh, helping this guy out, helping him build out things in the club and doing work for him. And it was maybe two weeks later. And he was like, I want you to be the general manager of this place. And I'm like, wow. absolutely. Absolutely. Of a Badass concert venue? Absolutely. Now, I'm still working full time doing demolition, too. Uh, and it was at this time also that the band came up to me and they were like, Sonny, we love you, right? But you, are, you have way too much passion for us. You want to go fast and we, we want to take our time and develop. We're not ready to go as fast as like you want to book a tour and do all this. Stuff. <laughs> and we're not ready for that. And I'm like, well, what are you ready? for what do you mean oh well we're just kind of we just wanted to be like a hobby i'm like well i'm not here to be a hobby man i've lost half my life i'm trying to to go and so we amicably split ways i'm still friends with all of them uh and then i and instead of focusing on music i just focused on the club uh putting on shows and we brought in some just amazing bands we had smile empty soul that came in that was an incredible band from the 90s uh we did uh, uh the misfits we brought Mushroom Head, uh, which ended up becoming a whole, whole other thing. Uh, <laughs> Jeff Hardy's band came in. Uh, man, we had, uh, oh, what, what's the, uh, I'm so addicted to all the things you do. That band, I can't even remember their name right now. Uh, they came in. We had a bunch of bands. And, and I got really ingratiated into music culture, the actual live music and how it all worked. Uh, and so I just started taking lessons on everything. Every band that came in, I would study and watch how they did do everything. Uh, and then I formed my own band. Uh, and late, later on, maybe a year down the road, a band called Grim Trigger. 
And that came out of an accident. The name of it was a butt text. It was an accident. Everything was an accident about this band. The band was built in nine days. Uh, my best friend from Michigan had moved down with me uh, and he was a drummer and a buddy of mine called and said, Hey, I need a drummer for a show that's coming up. Would your dude be willing to come learn the songs and do it? I said, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll talk to him. So we also had a recording studio that was part of the, uh, the club. So we met at the recording studio and I mean, I'm listening to the, these guys playing these songs. This band was called the dead Kings. Right. And it was literally like two people. And I'm like, this is, this is not good. This is not good. Like, I don't want my buddy to go up here and play drums on this. This is bad. Uh, and he was like, well, I don't know what else to do. I got this slot coming up in nine days. And I was like, well, let's just make a new band. He's like, okay. I was like, I got a handful of songs I can teach you from the Raising Jameson days. I can teach you these songs and uh, we can all go do this. And we, at that moment, I got a text. It was an accidental text from my ex that said something like XPHQ dot dot hashtag Grim dot trigger slash one gram <laughs> proof. And I'm like, damn, Grim trigger, one gram truth. I like it. So we wrote a song on the spot called One Gram Truth. It was a, a song about uh, heroin addiction, and we called the band Grim Trigger. And so we practiced every day for nine days, put together a five-song set, and it was just freaking incredible. The show day came. We went out. We absolutely killed this set. Everybody was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And it took off like a rocket ship from that point forward. Started. I mean, we must have done 30 shows in the next 45 days. Like, we did wow. shows. Every freaking night we were doing shows here, show there, show there. We played backyards. We played in bars. We played on big stages. I mean, we played everything you could think of birthday parties, whatever. We're in a backyard like, yeah, just, and it was incredible. And so over the course of the next year, we start, I mean, we played so many shows. We started getting headline offers in Virginia and Pittsburgh and Florida and in Ohio and uh, Michigan and Chicago. And it just took off. And next thing you know, I got a call from Dylan Deanna, who owns Ferocious Records, and was like, love your band. want to sign you on to the record label. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This is incredible. Only problem was your drummer's got to go. He's not that good. Oh. He's, he's a good live drummer. But being in a band, you have to be able to perform in a studio. You have to be able to go into a studio, put a click track in your ear, and you, your, your hits have to be even. Your feet have to be even. You know, it's really a precise thing. And it sucked because this is my best friend who moved from Michigan down here for this. Uh, but I, I gave him a heads up, like, listen, you got 90 days, bud. 90 days to get this right. If we don't get it right, I have to let kick you out of the band and get another drummer, or he's not going to sign us. I love you, buddy, but I can't let you not get the band signed to a label uh, and he didn't take it seriously. So 90 days later, it's like, dude, you got to go. And so we fired him from the band, which fractured that friendship. Uh, and, and ultimately now that I look back at it, it kind of was the beginning of the downfall for the band. Uh, we brought in a new drummer, which ultimately led to the bass player having a problem, which ended up him leaving. And then another bass player by within six months, it was an entirely new band except me. Uh, and, and then we did some touring, went out and did some shows and, uh, it just, it, it, it didn't go well. Right. Like it's people have problems. Like, well, our drummer had a heroin problem all of a sudden and cocaine gets involved and everybody's just falling apart. And it's like, 
oh my God, what are y'all doing? Like you have an opportunity to live your dream here and you're not paying attention. Uh, and so I got to the point where I'm not going to continue to uh, bleed for, for this if the team's not going to do the same. And I decided to put it on hiatus. Uh, I joined another band called the Wolf Hunters on bass and it was incredible. Like they're an amazing band. Uh, and we, we rocked out a whole bunch of shows on that and then COVID hit. So when, when COVID came up, I was like, well, that's, that's a wrap for that. Uh, so I, I started a YouTube channel <laughs> when, when COVID hit, I was like, well, shit, now what do I do? Uh, and I had saw a reaction video by an amazing reactor named no life shack. And I thought, man, if he can do that, I can do that. That's simple. I love music. I can sit and review music and critique it. So I popped on a camera and popped on. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, but this is what we're going to do. I'm going to check this out. Now, this is the ironic part. Uh, about a year prior to this, we had did a show with Mushroom Head, and it did not go well. Mushroom Head uh, has a reputation for not being uh, particularly kind to the bands that they're playing with. And one thing had led to another at the end of our set, and it ended up in a big brawl. Uh, oh. Me and Mushroom Head, like I was throwing them all over the place and it was just it was a, a bad situation so i figured and i i didn't have a problem with the band i had a problem with one guy in the band and i did not like that one guy and that's what it all stemmed from uh so i figured the first reaction video i'm gonna do is a mushroom head <laughs> <laughs> and so i did i did a mushroom head reaction and it did really well and people liked it and so i started to do more of them and then next thing you know within three months i got like ten thousand subscribers and i'm like wow wow this is this is taking off so i kept doing it and within six months i had close to fifty thousand subscribers and i just was doing really well making good money off of youtube i'm like this is the life um and at that time i was living with my son at that point was almost three uh the the apple of my eye just the center of my world like i love my my youngest son i was there from the moment uh, he was born uh, and just we're two peas in a pod, right? Like I love this kid. Uh, but I came, I went and had a Reiki session cause I also got into doing podcasting and, uh, doing shows like video shows, um, and, uh, and doing interviews and a buddy of mine said, Hey, have you ever heard of Reiki? And I was like, I don't know what Reiki is. <laughs> uh, so he said, well, you got to come check this out. It's really soul cleansing. Uh, cause I'm a very spiritual dude too. I love spirituality. Uh, I love anything to deal with that. So I went to this Reiki session and it blew my mind. Like this, this, this Reiki master opened up a lot of stuff that I was hiding from myself. Like going through this whole life, I was in a relationship with this woman that I was miserable in. Like I, I did not want to be there. I was, I was there simply because of the kid. I mm -hmm. knew if I left her, it would impact my son. And that she would probably, you know, she would try, she would keep my son from me. And so I stuck it out and stuck it out. And I was miserable uh, doing everything to make everybody else happy but myself. So the literally the moment after I got out of the Reiki session, I drove back home, walked in, sat her down and said, I'm done. I'm out of this relationship. I don't want to be okay. here. Anymore. And she lost it. She went ballistic <laughs> and it did not go well. And so now we're in the midst of a custody battle. So I can't really talk a whole lot about what took place, uh, but it was very, I lost everything. Um, I was essentially homeless 24 hours later. <laughs> I went down to Florida. My car was destroyed. Uh, a buddy of mine, ex from Mushroomhead, actually, it's funny, uh, flew me down there to stay with him. He said, I saw it. 
you got to get away, get some space, fly down here, come stay with me for a week. Uh, so I did. And while I was there, I bought a new car because my car was destroyed. I'm like, I've always been, a, it, losing is not about getting knocked down. It's not getting back up that makes you a loser. Uh, and so I wanted to show everybody, like, no matter what you're going through in life, if you can breathe, you can fight. So yep. get up every time. So here I am, I'm homeless, bought a car that walked in with nothing in my pockets and I was able to get a car uh, and we're going to rebuild from there. I drove back to Ohio. I, I did a GoFundMe. People helped me get enough money to get into a condo. I got a condo, boom, got back in, got my computer stuff set back up, boom, got back on the video, like, let's go. We're not going to stop and started to rebuild. And it, uh, it things didn't go well because of the relationship, the ex. Uh, and I had to get the hell out of there. Like, I didn't know what else, as much as I've been through my life, I don't have the answers to everything, right? Like, I don't, I don't always make the right decisions. Uh, and, and everything's still an experience. And so I had an interview on a podcast called Boot Camp for the Mind and Soul. Uh, and the host, uh, name's Claire Rogers. She's in England. And it, it was amazing, right? Like I met this woman and it was the moment I met her. It was like, I, I feel like I've known her my whole life. Like, like, and I felt that she knew me back. Like we connected in that hour that we talked and there hasn't been a day that we haven't talked since. And we're now married and we live wow. uh, in, in Palm Springs, California. And uh, that journey is just incredible. Uh, as I was going through all of uh, my stuff's getting broke into my, my motorcycles getting uh, trashed, my, my trucks getting trashed. I knew I had to get out of there. I didn't know what else to do. Like I'm, I want to fight to see my kid, but I don't know, like, I can't handle these people <laughs> doing that to me. Like I, I, I'm in really good control of myself, but I mean, I have breaking points too. And so before I do anything dumb, I'm going to get the hell out of here. I'm going to go out. I'm going to go to Phoenix and go spend some time with my other son and just clear the air, let people calm down a little bit. Uh, and I figured that might be a good path back. Uh, and so Claire and I talked the, every day, seven, six, seven hours a day on FaceTime. We talked every day. I went out to Phoenix. Uh, she had gone, just gotten a divorce and wanted to come uh, over here. And she told me about Palm Springs and she's also a keynote speaker and a motivational speaker and mindset coach. And that was something that was really big to me. I wanted to break into the motivational speaking mindset coaching game. Um, and so we, she flew out here June of last year and we met here in Palm Springs and have collectively become a power couple together to do the best that we can to heal and change the world. Uh, I'm now an ambassador for an anti-bullying nonprofit organization called Buddha Bullying. Uh, and we go into schools and we talk to hundreds of kids and give them uh, tips and tools and parents and teachers as well, give them tips and tools, how to identify bullying and eliminate it. Um, we have a, um, a coaching company called Itopia. Uh, and that's designed to help people get out of a rut that they're stuck in, get out, get out of your own way, eliminate bad habits, develop good habits. Uh, and, and we're, we're opening a cat cafe out here in, in Palm Springs, which is an incredible thing. And we just, 
There's something profound when you meet somebody that you click with on all levels and you never know where it's going to come from, right? It might come on the heels of a horribly bad relationship and it could come out of nowhere. And it just, it kind of did. And so she has such an incredible story of her own. And just together, it's just a symbiotic relationship of pure love and trust and authenticity. And it's, my life is now absolutely 100% incredible. It's amazing. It's amazing what you're doing, but as both of you coming together and doing, because it's making a big impact in this world and especially in key topics that are going on and people are experienced today. For people that are listening to the audio part, you might not be able to see what Sonny, but talk about your tattoos because I'm fascinated about, does it fit that identity of a musician? Sometimes we see tattoos all over the place, but is this these tattoos, an expression of who you are, are there powerful meanings behind them? Some, some of them. (laughs) Most of the tattoos were a defense mechanism. Uh, When I first got, I've only had three tattoos in the last 12 years. Um, I've got one up here. It was a bind rune that my buddy that I was in prison with did for me in Michigan. I got uh, a Viking uh, tag on my shoulder. Uh, and then I have an infinity or a, a twin flame symbol on my ankle that Claire and I have matching ones. Um, other than that, I got all of them in prison as a defense mechanism, right? Because I was this skinny, tall, white kid that had long hair. And uh, again, I was raped the first week I was in prison. And I figured that's why I look like somebody that you can take advantage of. And I knew that if I covered myself in tattoos, I won't look like that anymore. Uh, so I started to just slap anything on, boom, boom, whatever, look tough, whatever, look mean, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but then at some points I determined like, okay, I want to get stuff that has meaning. So I started to get meaningful tattoos. Uh, and there is a lot of meaning behind a lot of the things. Like I have Odin over here because I'm an Odinist, uh, and I follow the path of the Vikings. Uh, so I have hammers in, in Odin. Uh, I have a lion over here because I'm a big fan of Jesus Christ and, uh, the lion tribe of Judah was an amazing tribe from the old Testament. Uh, and I have like Joshua 24, 15 and Roman numerals here. This is the Southern cross, which represents the five wounds on Jesus Christ. I think Jesus was an amazing human being. Uh, but I think he was a human being at the end of the day, uh, just an amazing guy that totally believed in his faith. Uh, and, and I loved him. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of it is, uh, heathen related, uh, Odinist related and, uh, yeah, it was a defense mechanism for the rest of it. Which one was the most painful? Oh, that's Odin by far. That was, <laughs> that was 12 hours of, oh, and I don't really want tattoos anymore. Like I'm over it. Like, <laughs> You're done. <laughs> I'm over it. Like I just, I don't have the desire to feel it anymore. There's a lot that I would like to get fixed up, but then it's like, yeah, but I don't really want to go through it. I don't want to feel it. So I'm kind of good. Maybe someday I'll, I'll get some stuff patched up, but to be honest, I'm 41 at this point. I don't need to be getting any more tattoos. I remember when I got my first one on my back and my family's like, oh, you're going to get covered. I go, who said I'm going to get covered? I, I have the control of when I go get them. And I, I always think of a lot of people you see, a lot of friends that I had, they just get them just to get them. And it's like, you probably had a reason why you got them at that time. 
And like you had a reason, the defense mechanism. And then over time, there was think key things that were passionate fit in your life and meaning. And then it, over time, so there's always a reason for you to get them. And I love the meaning. Even when I see them, I'm like, what's the story behind it? Because you can learn a yeah. lot of people from just a tattoo on their body. And I, and again, I don't regret any yeah. of them. Uh, some of them are very poor quality. Uh, and some of them just look like crap. Like this, this over here is just a bunch of junk. It's just crap, right? It's just, just crap. Like what the hell is that? <laughs> but you can't pay for that. I had to go through a journey yeah. that most men don't walk to get this tattoo, to get the tattoos that I have. I had to go to a place that you can't go on purpose. Like, well, I mean, you could, if you wanted to, but you can't pay for it. You can't walk into a shop and get the experience that I have between behind every tattoo that I have. You know what I mean? And so for that, I don't regret any of them. We kind of talked about that. You don't regret things. What's been the biggest thing you've learned about yourself through every journey you've been on so far in your life? Uh, Authenticity wins every time you can. I could have avoided so much in my life just by being authentic. Most of the bad things that have happened in my life were because I was being inauthentic. I was trying to be somebody I wasn't. I was trying to hide from something. Uh, I was trying to protect something else that didn't need to be protected. Uh, it just from inauthenticity. And so the biggest lesson I have learned in life is to be authentic with everything, everything and everybody just be as authentic as possible. And it's possible to be 100% authentic. So you don't have any excuse to not be authentic. I love that because I think being authentic is so key for me, especially being true to myself. I don't want to be out there and someone says, oh, that's not you. No, I, that is who I am. My real friends know who I am. Family knows who I am. And I don't want to put a fake persona out there. Right. Within 10 minutes of talking to me, you'll know exactly who I am. Yes. Because I wear it on my sleeve. And again, this is your life, right? Like you don't, you don't have to make an excuse or an apology for anybody. You don't need approval from anybody. This is your life. You get to live it. Like nobody's going to the next one with you and nobody was in the other one with you. This is your life. Like you get to live this. Nobody else gets to come through and say, Hey, you can't do that. Yep. And, and that's why like lately I've been getting big into politics. Like, with the whole Roe versus Wade thing where they, they overturned that like that to me is the biggest slap in the face of women. And, and I just, I, I can't shut up about it. Like I'm, I, I can't stop as much as I hate politics. I don't like to talk about politics because it's always just an argument at the end of the day, nobody on this planet can tell anybody else what they can or cannot do with mm-hmm. their body. This is your life. You get to live it. And if anybody's listening that that has any doubt about what to do in life, do whatever you want. Do what makes you happy. Your happiness is important and you are worth that happiness. No matter what, you deserve to be happy. And, And nobody else can tell you what that happiness looks like. Whatever makes you happy, do that. It's funny you mentioned that because I just posted something on my social media platforms about that same thing. Like you have control of what you want to do. If you want to go do it, you go do it. Don't let anyone stop you because like you said, it's your life. You have the driver's seat on what happens. 
Right. And you're firmly in the driver's seat. Nobody else can be in it. If, if you're doing something that you don't want to do, it's because you've allowed somebody else to take control of the driver wheel. Yep. And, and you don't have to do that. It, it might not make everybody happy. Sometimes people are going to get pissed off and some people are going to get hurt by the decisions you make. And that's okay. That is a part of life. You're hurting is a part of life, sadness, loss. It's all a part of this experience that we get to live, right? That's one of the best teachings from Seneca, uh, another great Stoic, or, or not Seneca, but uh, what's the other guy? Not Marcus Raley's, not Seneca, but yeah, that guy. Uh, <laughs> he, he was born a slave and was a slave until he was 30. And then and his slave owner broke his leg, like just to torture him, just broke his leg. And he was like, if you keep twisting my leg, you're going to break it. <laughs> and, and he broke it. Epictetus. This is what we're talking about. Epictetus, great Stoic. Uh, and he saw that as, you know what, he might have broke my leg, but it was an experience. I got to experience life. I've got I, everything we have is an experience. There's another Stoic philosophy called uh, Amor Fati, which is love the process. If you can learn to love the process of everything that you go through, everything you go through, learn how to love it. It puts you in such an advantageous position to gain from it and gain experience from it because everything that we go through is experience. Whether it's, it's happy or sad, it's an experience and experience becomes wisdom. It's, it, it's, it's basic. <laughs> so what does the future look like for you? What are you hoping to accomplish in the next few years, both personally and professionally? You know, we have that completely designed out. Like, uh, it's it's amazing when you you know what you want in life, right? Like, my biggest advice to anybody is to have a plan, right? Mm-hmm. Don't have a plan B, because I don't plan on failing. So I don't need a fallback plan. I don't plan on falling back. Denzel Washington, one of my idols, said, I don't need to fall back. I'm going to fall forward. Uh, I don't want to fall backwards. So I don't have a backup plan. Uh, and it's it's really quite simple. Uh, we are, we have a, our, our own LLC called anywhere with you. Uh, and that came because her and I love to travel and it doesn't matter where we are uh, is and anywhere with you is where I want to be. Uh, uh-huh. And so anywhere with you, LLC is our company uh, and we're opening frisky business cat cafe. Uh, and it's going to be a franchise. It's the first franchise cat cafe. Uh, and we're going to franchise that. And so we're almost ready to open this one. Uh, And as soon as this one opens, we're going to go open the next one. And within a year, our goal uh, is to live in an RV. We, we want Ah. to, uh, we want to be full-time RVers because we love to travel where we have nomadic spirits. Nothing uh, makes us happier than being at the ocean on a beach Uh, together. We have spent an entire day just sitting there from sunup to sundown on a beach. And it's amazing. And we want to live in an RV. We want to, get a, a, a nice uh, RV trailer and, uh, and a nice truck and just go wherever we want and travel and go check in on our businesses and go to the next town and, and set up shop and open up another uh, cat cafe and then go to the next one and open up a cat cafe. And, and at the same time, we're going to do travel vlogging as well, but we'll also be working on our motivational speaking uh, and mindset coaching as we go, because we can do it from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then ideally we want to set up the, the Von Cleveland foundation, which would be a nonprofit to help disadvantaged youth, LGBTQ plus kids, 
uh, that are like uh, aging out of foster homes uh, and don't really have a shot at life. And it's not just for LGBTQ kids, but anybody that comes from disadvantaged backgrounds that doesn't really have a shot in life. Uh, and we want to help you. We want to help give you. Uh, Claire has such amazing uh, business background experience uh, working for a Fortune 100 company. Uh, and we want to teach uh, kids how to have a successful future and then give them the opportunity uh, to go do that. So big things uh, coming up in our life and we're, we're, we're focused and, and ready to go get it. All exciting. I'm excited yeah. to see what happens. The final question I have for you, for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? Uh, remember that everything is a choice. Everything's a choice, including hurting, being sad. It's all a choice. You choose to be in that mindset. You can eliminate that mindset at any moment. You can, you can choose to sit down, forgive, let everything in your life that has ever hurt you, let it go. Wish it love and light and nothing but happiness And that's going to make you so much more happier and you can accomplish anything you want. Manifestation is a real thing. Focus on what you want, not what you don't want. If you think today's going to suck, it's going to suck. Mm -hmm. If you think today's going to be amazing, it's going to be amazing. And you can accomplish anything you want to. If I can do this, anybody can do it. I don't have any superhuman special powers. My life was crap. I don't have any, I don't have any advantages that nobody else has. You just got to take it. You have to want it, manifest it, choose success. Well, Sonny, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Thank you so much, my friend. It's a pleasure to be here and I'll, I'll follow, man. We'll stay in touch. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episode in video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.